Father, thank you that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. That from heaven, you came and sought each one of us so that we could be your children. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing journey we've had through the first five books of the Bible. And I pray for your great blessing as we finish Deuteronomy tonight and for your continued blessing as we have 61 more to go. I ask, Father, that your spirit would be the voice we hear tonight, that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen? So, much of what we've seen of Moses has been him as a lawgiver. However, throughout Deuteronomy, he did pick up the mantle of prophet. Additionally, Moses is a poet. There are three songs that Moses wrote that are recorded for us in Scripture. Perhaps he had more, but we only got three in Scripture. There was the song of deliverance when they left Egypt, which is recorded for us in Exodus 15. There is the song of Moses that we're going to look at tonight in Deuteronomy 32. Then Psalm 90 is credited to Moses as well. Psalm 90, 9090. Now, I don't know how many of you did your homework this week and read the book of Hosea. I'm not going to ask for hands. I'm going to give a great admission that as I was looking at my notes this afternoon and remembered, um, even though I've looked at these notes every day this week and remembered every day, but this afternoon I was looking at the notes again and I went, wait a second, I didn't do my own homework. So this afternoon I read the book of Hosea. Uh, that way I would at least be able to say I had. Um, forgot. I always, it's been a while since I've read Hosea, about a year. And, uh, oh, Hosea is such an amazing book. But if you want, you can make Psalm 90 your bonus reading for this week, uh, much less than the 14 chapters of the book of Hosea. Uh, the background for chapter 32 really came in chapter 31, verse 19, where God commanded Moses to write down this song and to teach it to the people as God's witness against them when they turn away from God once they are in the land and are comfortable. This is still sung, this song is still sung by many Jewish people today, and it still serves as a witness as to why the people experienced so much trouble. Ultimately, it was because of their disobedience to God. Uh, the book of Hosea, again, a great reminder of that and a great picture of that. But we get into chapter, well, technically, we're going to look at the last verse of chapter 31, which says, Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Um, another prime example of how the chapter breaks are just so bad. Some, sometimes. Not always, but sometimes the chapter breaks are just really bad. Chapter 32. Oh, Sorry. I mentioned it last week. I, I, know, I looked at my notes and forgot something. Um, this song is an acrostic. Uh, so every stanza of the song begins with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, very much like Psalm 119. This was done because it made it easier to memorize. Psalm 119 is actually what they would use to teach Hebrew children their alphabet. They had to memorize the whole psalm. And by the time they, well, because not only did each section start with a different letter, or a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet, 
Um, but also every line in that section began with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It doesn't really transfer over to English, but um, the Hebrew children would memorize Psalm 119 in order to learn the Hebrew alphabet. So there you go. Psalm, Psalm, Deuteronomy 32. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain. My speech distill as the dew. As rain drops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is for all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. What a what an amazing beginning to this song. I'm gonna we're gonna kind of take this in bits and pieces as we go. So he wants he's calling heaven and earth to witness these teachings, and he wants the teachings to drop on them like rain. In other words, he wants them to be covered with this teaching. He wants them to be, you know, when it's raining and you're outside and you come in and you're soaked from top to bottom. He, that's what he wants, this teaching just to envelop them. Why? He goes, because I proclaim the name of the Lord. And if your Bible is anything like my Bible, Lord, again, is in all capital letters, meaning it is the name of God, right? And we don't actually know what the name of God is. We know it's in Hebrew, a Y, an H, a V, and an H, um, and can either be Yahweh or Jehovah or maybe something else. Uh, Yahweh comes from taking the vowels out of the word Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. Uh, no, that Jehovah does that. Yahweh comes from taking the vowels out of Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God. So both of those could be wrong. Those are just guesses. We don't know. But whatever it is, we're going to proclaim here the name of the Lord. We're going to ascribe greatness to our God, which I think is interesting. I think all too often, our own fears and our doubts, we lessen God in our own minds. I, I, I don't think, we can't actually lessen God, right? He is great, and he can never cease being great. But I think in our minds, or in our culture, or in our churches, we, we tend to make him less than what he really is because of our own doubts and fears. And no, we are to ascribe greatness to him. For he is the rock. We're going to see that repeated several times throughout the song. Uh, Jesus is called our rock. He is the rock of salvation. He is the foundation that we build our house on. He is the rock and his work is perfect. And again, I think sometimes we struggle with that a little bit because we don't see it because we're impatient, because we don't get how the end is going to play out. Um, we're not always paying attention. But his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. He is a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And I think that's super important for us to understand. When we get up to the book of Revelation in, in you know, 27 years, um, we will read as God is pouring out judgment on the earth, the host of heaven saying, true and righteous are your judgments. Because God will never do anything that is unjust. He will never do anything that is unfair. He will never, ever do anything that will violate his perfect character. 
And I think people get this idea, you know, uh, one of my favorite examples of this is, well, what about the, you know, the, the person deep in the jungles of South America that's never heard the name of Jesus? What's God going to do with them? And I usually answer two ways, depending on the mood I'm in. If I'm snarky, I, I tend to say, well, if, if you're so concerned about it, you should become a missionary and go tell them. Uh, let me know how the poison frogs taste. Uh, but typically what I answer is, is I go to a verse like this, and I go, well, we know God is just. And we know God is fair. So you know what? I don't exactly know what God is going to do with that person. But I know whatever he does do, it will be just, and it will be fair. And since you're so concerned about the spiritual well-being of others, why don't we talk about your spiritual well-being, because you're a sinner and you need Jesus. Kind of a good segue. Verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation, do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found them in a desert land, in a wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled them. He instructed them, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. Just think about this. He goes, you're corrupt, you're perverse, you're crooked. How can you treat your father this way? Right? Your father who did what? Who bought you and made you and established you. It's such an incredible thought. God created us. We are all created in the image and likeness of God. And we, we've talked about that, and I don't want to really get into that now, but we've talked about being created in the image of God. Then he bought us. With the children of Israel, the same with us as followers of Christ. With the children of Israel, he sent Moses. They, they, he delivered them from Egypt. He gave and gave and gave to purchase them. And what did he give for us? Well, he gave us his son. So not only did he create us, which makes us his, then he purchased us, which makes us his. Then he established us. For them, he established them as a nation. For us, he established us as the church. Created, bought, and established. And so then he goes, remember the days of old. If you don't remember, ask your father. If you don't want to ask them, ask your elders. They're going to tell you what happened. They're going to tell you how he separated the lands. They're going to tell you how the Lord, how, how the people are the Lord's portion. They're going to tell you how he found them in a desert land, encircled them, instructed them, kept them as the apple of his eye. Which is such an interesting statement. For a long time, I had no idea what the apple of one's eye meant. But did you know it's your iris? It's, it's the, the little, right? The iris is the black part in the middle. That's what I said, the pupil. Isn't it? Iris is the coloring around the pupil. And the, you're right. See, I should put this in my notes. 
But anyway, the pupil is the apple of your eye. I mean, arguably one of the most sensitive parts of the body. Right? What, what happens if you get an eyelash? Right? You get a little eyelash that falls off in your eye and it drives you nuts. Or you get a little piece of, a little piece of sand in your eye and it just drives you bonkers until you get it. We are the apple of God's eye. How cool is that? But he instructed them, kept them as the apple of his eyes. The eagle stirs up its nest, hovering over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up and carrying them on his wings. So the Lord led them and there was no foreign God with them. And, and I kind of like this illustration. Uh, eagles do it. Other birds do it too. You know, the, the little baby bird is getting bigger and it's getting fed. And then one day mama bird just throws them out of the nest. <laughs> and what happens? Well, the, the little thing, you know, screams or whatever. I don't know what noise these baby eagles make and tries to flap its wings and mama swoops down and picks them up, takes them back to the nest, gives them a couple minutes to relax and throws them out of the nest again, right? And the mama does this over and over again until what? Until the little, little baby eagle learns how to fly. Now, I think God does the same for us, but he leads us. No other God leads us. There are no foreign gods among them. But he'll, he'll keep doing that over and over. He'll keep pushing us out of the nest, and we, try, we run back. I, I don't know about you, but I run right back. I'm like, Lord, I, ooh, 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 I don't want to do that. Until we learn. He made him ride in the heights of the earth, verse 13, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk from the flock with fat of lambs and rams, of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest breed and drink wine of the blood of grapes. So just this picture of God's great provision for them. But Jeshurun grew fat in the kick. Jeshurun is a poetic name for Israel. It literally means upright or righteous. But what happened? They grew fat. And so they kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese. Then he forsook God who made him, scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to gods, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. So just continue to look at this picture of when they get in the land and they grow comfortable, what are they going to do? They're going to forget about God. They're going to start worshiping false gods. They're going to forget about the rock of their salvation. They're going to become unmindful of God, which to me is such an interesting statement. Not just they don't think about him as much as they should, but he's out of mind, just gone. In Jeremiah 2.13 the prophet writes, well, God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah and says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. These two evils, one is forgetting God, and then the second one is going after something false that cannot hold water. That's exactly what's being described here. They said, you're, he's un, you're unmindful for me. You've forgotten the God that fathered you while you're going after these abominations. You see, everybody worships something. People like to claim that they're atheists. There's no such thing as an atheist. Everybody worships something. Everybody has some sort of God. 
Everybody trusts in something. Now some people say, well, I'm an atheist. I believe in myself. Well, guess who your God is or your idol? Or, you know, I trust science. Okay, well, you've made science your God. I think after the last two years, if, if you're still trusting certain scientists, you, you ain't been paying attention. Well, I trust in nature. Go out in nature. It will eat you. Yeah. Right? Because we've forsaken the fountain of living waters and hewn out our own cisterns, broken and cracked that can't hold water. Why would we choose anything other than the one true God who loves us so much that he sent his son to save us? I don't get it. Verse 19, and when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. Now, I like that verse. And I'm going to tell you why I like that verse. They provoked him to jealousy by going after what's false. So God says, I'm going to provoke them to jealousy by what? I'm going to provoke them to jealousy by a foolish nation or by those who are not a nation. And I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. That's us. Up in Romans chapter 10, verse 19, Paul quotes this, noting that God is using the Gentile church to provoke Israel to jealousy because of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. All the way back here in the book of Deuteronomy, the Gentile church, us right here, right now, in Gunnison, Colorado, from this point in time, 4,000 or so years, 3,500 years after that, we're fulfilling that prophecy. That's pretty cool, if you ask me. If you don't think it's pretty cool, well, then there might be something wrong with you. But I think it's pretty cool <laughs> that we are fulfilling prophecy at this very moment. Verse um, 22. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured with pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, the nursing child and the man of gray hairs. I would have said I will dash them in pieces. I will make them a memory of them to cease from among men had I not feared the wrath of the enemy lest their adversaries should misunderstand lest they should say, our hand is high, and it is not the Lord who has done this. So in other words, he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy them. I'm going to let destruction come, but not utterly, because I don't want the enemies of Israel to think that they were the ones who did it, instead of me punishing, the, punishing them for their disobedience. Verse 28, for they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise. That they understood this. That they would consider their latter end. And how many people fail to consider the outcome of their actions. 
They don't consider what's coming. Now, there are some people that are just evil and they know what they're doing. And, and that's another topic. But how many people, they say, well, I, I, I can live however I want. You, you know, I don't have to go to church. I, I, don't, have to, I don't have to believe in Jesus or God. I'll, I'll just, I'll do the best I can and I'll, 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 you know, whatever afterlife there is, I'll probably be okay. Think of how unwise, how void of counsel, how, they're, how, how they lack understanding when they're not considering the outcome of that kind of attitude or just the attitude of sin. Well, I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever makes me happy. There's no, there's not going to be any consequences for it. Even Christians get that attitude. Yeah, there will be consequences for it. But God knows that end. He's given us his word to warn us of what that end will be so that we don't have to experience it. Verse 30, how could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges, for their vine is of the vine of Sodom and their fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, which is a, a, a like vile. Uh, their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Remember, God promised that when Israel went into the land, that one would put a thousand to flight and two would put 10,000. But in their disobedience, the enemies will do that to them. Verse 34, is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time for the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people, his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining, bond or free. He will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. Notice little r. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. So in other words, God's going to unleash punishment on those who are disobedient. And then when they're, they're crying about it, Where's your little wooden statue? Why isn't it rising up to help you? Where's your little golden God? Why isn't it giving you the refuge that you want? You gave it sacrifices. You gave it wine. Let your false gods rise up to help you. Now imagine the people who are trusting in money or trusting in their works. Or, you know, we've spent the last several weeks studying all these cults and world religions in Sunday school. You know, what, what about the people who were looking to their whatever, their own good works to not be reincarnated as a fly or a, a specific leader who has claimed themselves to be God but truly isn't? You think God's not going to ask these questions? You think that day comes? Well, but I, I sincerely believed in my false God. You don't think God's going to go fine. Let him help you. Or, or her, or it, or them, or whatever it might be. Verse 39. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. 
nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Now remember, this is all in the context of that very first couple verses we read that he is just and he is righteous. So if he being the only God that there is, now people worship other things and maybe they're demonically influenced or maybe they're just dumb idols. I love it and I can't remember the chapter, it's in Isaiah, where he goes, you go out to the forest and you cut down a tree and you carve a little God out of it and then, then you put the rest in the fire to keep your house warm and then you put the rest in the oven to bake your bread. Wait, wait, but it doesn't have eyes to see, it doesn't have ears to hear, it doesn't have legs that it can walk. Why, why would you worship that? There's only one God. And there's, he, he kills and makes alive. That is his prerogative. He wounds and he heals. Sometimes, you know, often the same person on multiple occasions. At least if you're anything like me. God will, will deal me a wound of rebuke when I need it. And it hurts. And then he'll tie me back together when I need it and bring me comfort and peace. There's none who can deliver from my hand. Oh, you know, there's people out there, they think they're little wooden whatevers or they're little gold whatevers or however much money they have in their bank account is going to be enough to defy the one true living God. It's going to be a bad day when they learn otherwise. And when he deals out judgment, it will be fair and it will be just. Verse 43, rejoice, O Gentiles. Yes. Come on, Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Why would he tell the Gentiles to rejoice? It was always his plan to bring us in. It was always his plan to offer salvation to the entire world. And he will provide that atonement. And how does he provide that atonement? Well, we know the answer to that, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the wages of sin, of course, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He provided that atonement through his son Jesus. What an incredible, incredible gift. The Song of Moses, folks. You guys ready to get through the rest of this? So Moses came with Joshua, verse 44, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel, and he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children, to be careful to observe all the words of this law, for it is not a futile thing. 
because it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You know what I would tell you? What we're doing tonight, what we do every Wednesday and every Sunday and a whole bunch of other times whenever we get together, it's not a futile thing. It's not empty. It's not vain. Because God's word is, is our life. Remember when, when Jesus was talking in, in John chapter 6 about how his body was food indeed and his blood was drink indeed. And a bunch of people had a really hard time. And he said, you know what? The words that I'm saying to you, they are spirit and they are life. Right? Because there was a spiritual application to it. But a bunch of his disciples turned away. And he looked at uh, a bunch of the people who were following him, not the, none of the 12, but a bunch of the people that were following him turned away. And so he looked at his disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? And Peter looked at him and he said, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. That's why we're here. That's why we're in this book. This is the only place we can find it, is in the truth of God's word. And so, of course, Moses encouraged them to listen to it. Verse 48, Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up this mountain of the Abirin, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession, and die on the mountain which you ascend. And be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Or and was gathered to his people. Because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hollow me or count me as holy in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. So, of course, uh, Mount Nebo is the highest mountain in the range of Pisgah, in case you wanted to know that. Uh, he could see the land. But he was not allowed to enter because of his disobedience or his failure to, to count God or represent God as holy before the people. Now, a little bit of trivia. Did Moses ever make it into the promised land? No. In Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration, both Elijah and Moses appeared to Jesus or with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, um, so I, I don't know if that counts because you know it was he was dead and he was in, in his whatever his eternal form would be or spiritual form or or resurrected body or whatever it is. Well, it couldn't have been his resurrected body. Jesus hadn't died and risen again. So well, I don't know what form he was in, but Moses did kind of get a pass. And of course, there are those who uh, would argue that the two witnesses in the Book of Revelation are Moses and Elijah. Uh, because of the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, I don't know. But yeah, he kind of got in. Chapter 33. Now, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. So this is Moses' final blessing to the tribes of Israel. There's some similarity here to Jacob's blessing of his children, the same tribes of Israel at the end of Genesis before his death. Uh, one tribe, though, and I don't know if you would have noticed this. I actually didn't notice this. It was pointed out to me in a commentary. Uh, one tribe is missing. The tribe of Simeon is not mentioned in this list. Uh, not exactly sure why. Later on in the history of Israel, 
Uh, well, it's history from our point, it's future from their perspective. Later on, the tribe of Simeon was sort of absorbed into the tribe of Judah and wasn't always named as a separate tribe, but whatever the case, it's not mentioned here. So the Lord came, verse 2, from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came with ten thousands of saints from his right hand. Came a fiery law for them. Yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet. Everyone receives your words. Moses commanded the law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun. When the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Just how beautiful is this? God, the fire that consumed the mountain as he delivered the law to Moses. But what does he say in verse 3? He loves us. His saints are in his hand. We are his saints. They sit down at your feet. We get to sit at his feet. Moses commanded this law, a heritage. You know, and I've brought this up on multiple occasions, but so many people get this very confused idea that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament must be two different gods. Because the God of the Old Testament is all wrath and the God of the New Testament is all love. Um, Deuteronomy 33, verse 3. He loves his people. How many times have we read about his compassion and his mercy that he would pour out on, on, on his children, on Israel? And for anybody who thinks that there's no wrath in the New Testament, well, they've missed a few things. Uh, places like, you know, Matthew 24, uh, Romans chapter 1, the book of Revelation. You know, little things that they're kind of ignoring that God does not express his righteous wrath in the New Testament. So he is a God of love and a God of peace and a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of forgiveness. But he is also righteous and holy, and his wrath will reflect that. So let's let's dive in. Let Reuben live and not die, nor let his men be few. That's his blessing. There you go. Hopefully Reuben doesn't kick off. And this he said to Judah. Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and may you be a help against his enemies. And of Levi he said, let your thumim and your Urim be with you, your Holy One, whom you tested at Massa, and with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah. Remember the Urim and the Thummim, uh, it means lights and perfections, and it was part of the high priest's regalia. Uh, some people think it was two stones, a white stone and a black stone, uh, but whatever it was, it was used to determine the will of God. We don't exactly know what it is, but it means lights and perfections. Uh, who says of his father and mother, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his own children, for they have observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob, that was part of their job, they will teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law, they shall put incense before you and whole burnt sacrifice on your altar, that was part of their job. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Strike the loins of those who rise up against him and of those who hate him, that they rise not again. Now what a, what a prayer for the tribe of Levi. If anybody comes up against the Levites, Lord, strike their loins, which is a fancy way of saying um, that they would be barren, but still. Of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, who shelters him all day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. And that's a beautiful picture uh, of a shepherd 
who would carry a lamb on its shoulders if it was injured or if he had to break its leg because it kept running away. But it was a picture of the shepherd carrying that lamb. Now Joseph, Joseph gets a long blessing. Blessed of the Lord is his land with the precious things of heaven and with the dew and the deep lying beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth in its fullness and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Of course, that's a reference to God. Actually, very specifically, a reference to Jesus as he claimed to be the voice of the burning bush in John chapter 8. Um, let the blessing come on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. His glory is like a firstborn bull and his horns like the horns of a wild ox. Together with him he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Remember Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's two sons and when Jacob was about to die, he took them as his own. He said, they will be my sons. So you will very rarely see the name of Joseph mentioned among the 12 tribes of Israel. Typically, Levi is left out and Ephraim and Manasseh are mentioned instead. In this list, Simeon's left out and Levi's mentioned. Uh, and then Joseph is mentioned with Ephraim and Manasseh as kind of a footnote. Uh, verse 18, and of Zebulun, he said, rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the peoples to the mountains and they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hidden in the sand. Um, at one point in time, people thought that the place, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in Joshua, but they thought that the place where Zebulun and Issachar settled in the land, uh, that there was oil there because there were supposedly treasures hidden in the sand. So they went and dug or drilled and didn't find any. Uh, there is oil in other places in Israel, just not there. Uh, and of Gad, he said, blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion. He tears the arm and the crown off his head. He provided the first part for himself because a lawgiver's portion was reserved for himself. Or sorry, was reserved there. He came with the heads of the people. He administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan. I bet, I bet the whole tribe of Dan was like, uh, Thanks. And of Naphtali, he said, O oh, Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessings of the Lord, possess the west and the south. And of Asher, he said, Asher is most beloved or blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. So somebody else thought that it was where Asher settled. Oh, well, obviously it wasn't where Issachar was. It's got to be where Asher settled because he dipped his foot in oil. It wasn't there either. Uh, your sandals shall be iron and bronze as your days, so shall your strength be. So we're done, right? That's the end of the blessings. And so Moses finished. This is, this is the last words of Moses to the nation of Israel. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to help you and in his excellency on the clouds. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, destroy. And Israel shall dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone. In the land of grain and new wine, his heavens shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. The shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you and you shall tread down their high places. And you know, that would have been the way it would have been forever if they had obeyed. 
but they didn't. And I do think that this, ah, and I know I mentioned it last week, but what a struggle this must have been for Moses to know, to know that they were, he had led them for 40 years, seen great victory. They were about to go into the land and see even greater victory. But he knew that one day their disobedience would cost them to be cast out of the land, to go into captivity, and to go through all of these horrible things. I can only imagine that would have been pretty difficult for Moses. Chapter 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho, and the Lord, Jericho, sorry. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the south and the plain of the Valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. Now, that's pretty incredible to me. Because you really can't see that far. You know, the horizon is what, 13 miles, 15 miles? depending on how high you are. So even if he was really high and say the horizon was 40 or 50 miles, right? Israel's bigger than that. So it would have been very, uh, this must have been. Does it say that God like picked him up into the sky before him? It, it doesn't. It just says that the Lord showed him. So I'm guessing something supernatural took place. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died. Now somewhere around here, uh, Moses stopped writing. <laughs> it's my guess that, that Joshua probably took it up. Um, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, speaking of God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim nor his natural vigor diminished. Man, I'm only 45. My eyes are dim and my natural vigor is diminished. I, I would love to have made it to 120 with that testimony. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him, so the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since... There had, but since then, sorry, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power, and all that great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So, the testimony of his vitality, Joshua takes over as leader, full of God's spirit and wisdom. I love that. I want to be full of God's spirit and wisdom. Now, it says no one knows the location of Moses' grave. We're given this general area uh, somewhere in this valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. Now, there is an interesting mention about the body of Moses in the book of Jude, verse 9. It says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, God is the one who buried him. And it would appear that at some point in time, God decided not to leave the body there. So he sent Michael to retrieve it. 
When Michael went to retrieve it, Satan showed up. Also, apparently, maybe attempting to steal it. For what purpose? I don't know. Maybe he was going to try to use it as a, like some sort of idol or, or something. But whatever the case, uh, Michael and the devil had an argument over the dead body of Moses, wherever it was. Uh, what's interesting about that is that Michael did not bring a reviling accusation against the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say, you know, well, you have authority, and we do have authority. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So you just command that devil to leave. Uh-oh. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask God to command that devil to leave. And the reason I say that is this. Not that we don't have authority. We have authority in Christ. We have authority by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And, and, and I don't want to diminish that truth. But in those occasions that I have had to deal with something demonic, I ask God to step in and take care of it. Because if Michael, who I'm just going to throw out there, is probably a little tougher than I am, probably a whole lot tougher than I am, if Michael's going, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say a word. God, will you take care of him? If that's, if that's what Michael's going to do, that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm thinking he does. <laughs> Probably does have weaponry that's designed just for the app. Yeah, but so if Michael's going to say the Lord rebuke you, when I have to deal with something demonic, I say the Lord rebuke you. I, I think it's a good plan. Now it says no prophet had risen uh, since then, like a, a prophet like Moses with, who knew God face to face with all the signs and wonders and all that he had done in Egypt and so forth. Uh, that was because when this was written down, uh, Jesus hadn't come yet. When Jesus comes on the scene, of course, he was the prophet like Moses that was prophesied that we talked about back in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Now, uh, one quick note about Mount Nebo. God must really like Mount Nebo. When Elijah is caught up to God in the chariot of fire in 2 Kings chapters 1 and 2, it was the same area. So there's something about this place that God likes to take his servants home from that. Not exactly sure why. Something to note that we will see more of in Joshua is that God brings his promises to pass. In Numbers 23, 19, it said, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do? Has he spoken? Will he not make it good? In Isaiah 60, verse 22, we read, At the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen. See, God has made us many promises, just like he had made promises to the children of Israel. He has made us broad promises as followers of Christ, promises about eternity, forgiveness, his presence and power with us, and a host of other things. God has made us specific promises as a church, both the Big C Church and us as New Song. God has made specific promises for us as individuals. Whatever the case, as we wait on the Lord, we can be assured that the promises of God will come to pass, that what he said he will do in his time and in his perfect way. Amen. We have now completed, my good people, one-seventh of the Bible. We figured out the percentage, right? It's like 16.5%, something like that. 14.5%, that's what I said. We finished the Pentateuch, the Torah, the five books of Moses that comprise the law. 
At this point in time, we've gone through several thousand years, give or take, 2,500 or so years of human history, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, because you know we don't have the exact time of Genesis 1-1. Next week, we will move into the historical books, which is everything from the book of Joshua to the book of Esther. So you better enjoy that cake here in a few minutes, because we're not getting another one, at least not on Wednesday night, till we get to the book of Esther, unless someone has a birthday or we just decide to make a cake. Uh, as we complete each major section of the Bible, we will celebrate. So there is a cake waiting for us. And as I shared with my family, I was at the store and, and I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me. It kind of sounded like my stomach rumbling, but I could swear it was the Holy Spirit telling me that, that he wanted a yellow cake with milk chocolate frosting. I think it's uncanny that God's favorite cake and my favorite cake just happened to be the same. Um, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. Uh, long story short, I really wanted that cake. No, so <laughs> that's what I bought, and my beautiful daughter made it. Next week, we will dive into Joshua as Israel enters the land, entering the promises of God. Until then, let's pray. Father, thank you for your promises to each of us. For the promises of your word, for the promises that you have given us as individuals, and for the knowledge and faith to believe your promises and to know that you will do everything you say you will do. Thank you most of all for the promise of Jesus, the promise of eternal life for all who believe in his death and resurrection. Thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. May each of us continue to walk with you, trusting in you, hoping in you, and resting in you. In Jesus' name I pray.